Two in a row at home for the Pacers. Tonight, the Utah Jazz. Tomorrow night, it is the Milwaukee Bucks at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Joining us now on the hotline to talk about the NBA. And he has a really interesting article that I think associates with the Pacers. And he probably is thinking, now, which one would I have had that associates with the Pacers? Mike Vorkanoff from The Athletic joins us, NBA writer. Uh, Mike, you had a really interesting piece a few days ago about the NBA franchises and their relationship to Bally Sports. Now, I don't know if you know, but in Indiana, it's been a huge talking point because Bally, you know, so many people have to actually buy the Bally, the additional service from Bally for like $20 a month just to watch Pacer games. And they've had all kinds of technical issues that has interrupted them from watching games that they're paying for. Um, where do things stand with Bally from their own economic standpoint and their relationship with the NBA? And then, of course, thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, happy to join you guys. Yeah, I, I was wondering where you were going to go with that. I wrote something about Tyrese Halliburton last year. I was like, is that is that what we're going to talk about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, um, Diamond Sports, which owns uh, the Bally Sports RSNs, um, has been going through bankruptcy since March, uh, going through bankruptcy court. And they uh, revealed in the court filing the other day that they have come to an agreement with the NBA. Uh, they have a term sheet in place that would basically give back the rights to both linear and direct-to-consumer uh, broadcast rights for the 15 teams that they have deals with after the end of this season. Obviously, the Pacers are one of them, right? Um, as you said, it's the Pacers broadcast on a Valley sports network. And so that kind of gave some finality to this huge uncertainty that's been weighing over the Pacers and 14 other NBA teams about where their games will air this year locally. Um, you know, because of everything going on with diamond sports right now. And so I know it's not a, I know, you know, indie fans aren't the only ones kind of going through their concerns with Bally's and their gripes with Bally's. I know the product hasn't been great in a lot of markets from what I hear. And so, at the very least, this might all be over after this season. Um, it might not as well because they could sign a new deal. But it, there is in kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel for some of the relationships and the uncertainty between the NBA and Bally. Just to clarify that, so is the thought that at the end of this season, teams will then have the choice if they want to re-up with Diamond Sports or go a different path? Is that kind of where things are trending? Yeah, so basically, the best way I can summarize this, right? So at the end of the season, every team that has a deal with a Bally Sports Network, there's 15 of them, um, they get their media rights back to air games within the local market and also to stream games. Uh, and obviously, they could still choose if they want to sign a new deal with the Bally's network in their market. So for Indianapolis, right, like, that could be something they choose to do. There's still a lot of money to be made uh, in selling your rights to an RSN. The question, obviously, because Bally's, because Diamond Sports is going through bankruptcy right now, it's will there be a Bally Sports Network to sell it to next summer, or will the Pacers or any of these other teams try to kind of move on to this new hybrid style of local broadcast that we've seen in Phoenix and in Utah already? where there's a streaming app and where there's uh, over-the-air broadcast locally on just kind of a broadcast channel. And that's something that the NBA has been pushing towards and has been talking about uh, consistently, including Adam Silver, over the last year or so about just kind of going back to, uh, going back to the future, in a sense, by having something on a free channel that airs 
uh, over the air on the broadcast channel. And then also fans have the option to buy uh, a streaming app associated with the team. So those are kind of a few of the pathways uh, that the Pacers or any of the other 14 teams could go. Mike, when you, in sticking with the Indiana Pacers, you've got another interesting piece about like the increase of three-team trades in the NBA and how that's kind of more of a thing than it was you know, five, ten years ago. For a market like Indiana, where theoretically, and trades, I guess, the player doesn't necessarily have any, you know, ability to determine where they're going to go, depending on the level of player. But Indiana maybe has to be, in terms of acquiring pieces, more creative than other franchises just because of some of the problems of just market size, weather, notoriety, et cetera. Is Indiana the kind of team that could get more involved as a cherry picker, if you will, with three-team trades, if that makes sense, what I'm asking? Yeah, and they could. And it's not only just that. It's also you know, they, have, they have a pretty flexible cap situation at the moment, right? That's why they were able to get in on Bruce Brown and offer him such a big deal because they have some cap space. They have some flexibility that they can move with. And so when you have a good amount of cap flexibility at a time when, um, you know, there's so little of it for teams that are above any of the first or second aprons, as well as, uh, you know, some of the costs associated with being over the luxury tax, it makes it a little easier for a team like the Pacers to get involved. Like, you know, that's why we see the the Thunder always get involved to some degree is because they have right now, at least not a lot of big salaries. Um, you know, they had been operating from a pretty relatively low payroll. And so now you see something like the Pacers where they kind of have the same amount of flexibility. And I think that's why you saw them at least reported to be in trade talks when, you know, there's the Pascal Siakam situation going down, right? Like that's why they were able to get on Bruce Brown is that they have this kind of short-term uh, freedom to move a little more easily than if you're a team that's over the first or the second apron. And it's just so much harder to do deals because of all the different things that the CBA precludes those teams from doing. Late in the season, if Indiana, and I think they're still trying to massage through Buddy Heald's role, Mike. Mike Borkenoff is our guest from the Athletic NBA writer. Buddy Heald, I love him. I mean, I like him as a player. I don't know him as a guy. But by all account, he is a good team guy for Indiana. But I also understand that he probably, um, from a financial standpoint, wants more than what Indiana is going to be able to invest beyond this year. So if they were to make him like a trade deadline guy, what sort of pieces would Buddy Heald net back is he a guy that there are teams that would that would want or covet his services yeah there are definitely be teams that would want his services you know he's in the last year of his contract right so you don't have any long-term um responsibilities if you're a team that's trading for him he's got kind of a decent cap number now i think he's somewhere around 18 and a half 19 million dollars right that you could uh extend them for you can now extend a veteran for 140 percent of their current contract and, and that should be a decent number for someone like him if that's the way you want to go and obviously he's also you know kind of a good player um the question will be really what kind of return uh, can they get and, and i think it's a little harder to say that right now i think his teams kind of figure out um what what these types of contracts are worth under the new cba right and as i said there's fewer uh, there's rather more restrictions now for teams that are above the first and the second apron, which makes it harder for them to make deals to some degree. And those are the teams that are usually buyers. Uh, but I, I think there's definitely a possibility if the Pacers want to trade them, um, that there would be a market for them. Mike Vorganoff covers the NBA for The Athletic, taking some time with us here on Query and Company. 
Mike, how long before we know if the in-season tournament has been the success that the NBA hoped it would be? Is it already that because it's being discussed pretty heavily when those games appear on the schedule, more so than an ordinary regular season game probably would have been? Or will it take one run through until we get to the final in Vegas in December? Yeah, I think it'll take more time. Uh, you know, obviously, like the initial interest is is valuable, but it's just one night and one weekend, right? Um, let's see what the ratings are for the semis and the finals in Vegas. Uh, let's see how much fans are into it. You know, let's see how much uh, players are into it. I, I think the NBA has already said, you know, that this is going to be kind of a multi-year project for them and trying to see what the success of it is. Also, let's see uh, what the situation is like in the summer of 2025 after they make their next round of media rights deals. And if they're able to sell that off as part of a new media rights package to uh, a streaming network or whoever, right. And if they can do that for a big number, then I think it's easier to call it a success uh, based on just the revenue that have coming in and not just whatever the, the fan interest may be. If this directly leads to profits and to larger revenue base, like that's a win. Mike, I am in no way, shape, or form under the impression that Daniel Tice is, you know, Nikola, Nikola Jokic, right? But <laughs> but I do think that he is a guy that probably is a better player than DMP coach's decision every night. That Maybe that's just rotation in Indiana. Um, but I thought he had a, a good offseason. I think he has an element to his game that Indiana could use, truth be told, but I'm not Rick Carlisle. Um He's another one. Would he would he net any interest elsewhere if they decided to flip him, or are they pretty much going to write out his contract and that's that? Yeah, I mean, it's harder to get something for him, right? He's older. He's not – like, if he's having trouble getting playing time on the Pacers, right, that kind of tells you about the, the player that he is, that he can be a good – big off the bench, but he's not necessarily someone you try to trade a first-round pick for. Yeah, I mean, I get that. But, like, I, I'm I'm a little befuddled, truth be told, and maybe I should know this because I go to games and, I, and, you know, we cover Indiana, but I'm a little miffed as to why he hasn't seen the floor at all because I do feel like he, da- he does have some game left in him. Yeah, he does. And I think he played uh, – if I remember, he played well enough for Germany over the summer too, right, as they won the gold medal. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I think probably, look, Indy has Miles Turner at center. They have, um, you know, Isaiah Jackson as well. And, like, they play fast, so it's hard to play two bigs at once. So it's just, you know, a bit of a, of a problem trying to find uh, room and space for them. And then, you know, as someone who's a veteran who they don't have a long-term commitment to uh, as well, you know, that, that kind of, you know, there's no tiebreaker for them uh, to win out when it comes to playing time as well. Mike, we are 100 days from NBA All-Star Weekend here in Indianapolis. I know what the pulse in the city is. We're all excited, can't wait for it. What's the pulse around the league as they get right at 100 days before NBA's greatest showcase arrives here? Uh, I, I think I think everyone maybe is hoping it won't be as cold as it was in Cleveland a few years ago. Um, you know, Midwest All-Star game. But I, I think the All-Star Game is going to be fun. I think this year is going to be fun, too, right? you got the return to the East versus West, and the league is obviously hoping to juice the All-Star Game and get some interest back into it, have a good game after a few lackluster ones. So I think that's going to be the big question for uh, the indie All-Star Game is, like, will this be a good All-Star Game again? Can this be a weekend that reboots the game itself and makes it fun and interesting after a few games where it just seemed like there wasn't much effort uh, and there wasn't much interest from the, from the fans either? Mike, I know what the local 
thought process is regarding the state of the Indiana Pacers. And I don't mean of the franchise. I just mean of the team itself in terms of how people see them, of their trajectory, and how people see them in terms of their overall competitiveness. But I want the national perspective. And the way that I best always ask this is, I want you to give me two to three teams that you think of in your mind in the same category as the Indiana Pacers right now in terms of like their market value in the league based on their roster, based on their sexiness, based on their style of play, etc. The three teams that you most – two or three that you most associate with the Indiana Pacers, go. That I most associate with the Indiana Pacers. Okay, this is going to be a tough one off the top of my head, but I, I think of them as a team that's got an interesting upside, that's got good young players uh, that I could see being – a you know, a consistent playoff team in a few years uh, and has some cap flexibility. It's hard to say what that might be. Maybe that's someone like uh, – they're further along than the Detroit Pistons are. Obviously, the Pistons have some talent. Um, I would say they're kind of in a similar situation to where the Brooklyn Nets are, right, like where they seem to be midway through some build with their own picks and some cap flexibility going forward. Uh, those are the teams that kind of come to mind. Maybe the Magic are interesting – uh, in a similar way, young and up and coming, those still some things to figure out going forward. But I think that's the perception of Pacers. It's just like they have talent. Tyrese Halberton is really, really good. Um, they have Benedict Mather and they have their picks. They have cap flexibility and uh, they're really fun and exciting to watch. And like that's a pretty good place to be. Now, is it true that the 2026 NBA draft actually is just entirely Oklahoma City? I think so. Yeah, I think they've just got. <laughs> I, I think maybe the Pelicans have a pick or something like that, but I think the other 29 are all. I mean, it is humble. Like, you want to talk about a team that's loading assets. Oklahoma City's been loading assets now, like, since the land rush, right? I mean, it's unbelievable how many picks they have. Yeah, I think when the NBA expands, it's just going to be another Thunder team. Like, that's all it is, just to make room for them to have all their picks go hey, somewhere. Okay, Mike, before we let you go, because I think this is of critical importance to this market NBA expansion. How many teams do you think ultimately, let's say between now and 2040, so in the next, you know, we'll say 15, 17 years, the NBA will expand to how many new markets? Between now and 2040, I, I think just two. Okay, and that would um, be, I'm assuming, I mean, you've got the, the, the three that I've always thought would be in play in no particular order, Seattle, Vegas, Nashville. Is it, are those two of, are two of the three that you're talking about in that group? Or, do I have the two of them? Yeah, I think Seattle and Vegas are the two best, you know, cases for a new team, for an expansion team. Like, I would say they're the front runners. Uh, and I think that if the NBA goes to new markets, it'll be those two. I think, what, it's been 20 years since they last added a team. In that time, I think only uh, Major League Baseball has added one team, and uh, the Texans in the NFL are a new team there, and, and hockey has added one team as well, I believe. So it's not as if like there's a lot of teams coming into each league for every 20-year period. It's, it's hard to get owners to agree uh, to open the doors for new teams and then to find cities that are viable and that make it worthwhile. So I, I would put it at two and, and find that to be a pretty uh, conservative you know, answer. And like probably this isn't something where you want to bring in a lot of new teams because you don't want to dilute not only well, – could we uh, could play, we be talking relocation? Yeah, but it's harder now to move a team. It's really hard to relocate, a, I think, a team because just the economics of all this have changed, right? Mo at least in the NBA, like pretty much every team is profitable now. 
Uh, and if you're profitable, why do you want to move? To be more profitable. Yeah, but they're in big markets now. What big markets out there? Let's say you go to Seattle and Vegas. What huge markets out there uh, are there out there that don't have a team? Well, I, not to mention the relocation costs that you're going to have to pay, which is a lot of upfront money, right? Um, you know, the obviously local broadcast. I'll tell you why I bring it up, Mike. I, I, I don't have anything concretely to base this on. I don't in any way, shape, or form think that the Indiana – I mean, I think the Indiana Pacers and the Simon family have been fabulous for the city of Indianapolis. I think they owe the city – I mean, they've, they've been great. They've been great partners. They've, they've absolutely jump-started this city some 40 years ago. But if there are – when there is eventually – the one thing you can never, ever rule out is the complications of inheritance tax – once an owner passes and it then goes to the children, you just, from a business standpoint, you know, if a Seattle or a Vegas still has not been given an expansion, I'm worried that somebody could come up with an ownership group that could buy the Pacers that would offset the inheritance taxes that would take place amongst the passing on of the team. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to say two things. And like, this is without any direct knowledge. Correct. Same here. I mean, this is correct. Two things. Usually in this situation, like the family wants to keep that team in the in the family, um, and maybe if there's a decision to be made, it would be you know by his when his son takes over, and if that's something that he wants to do, then it would be him doing it probably rather than Herb Simon doing it now. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, I think we've seen consistently in the United States that really, really, really wealthy people find a way to get around taxes if they need to, and so I, I figured there's probably some plan in place to deal with the inheritance tax. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I have no reason to believe that the Simons would not do everything in their power to keep the team here. But you just – I really want Seattle and Las Vegas to get teams as expansions. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know what are I mean? You, are you worried about the Pacers leaving? Is this Honestly, this is not something I had heard of. That, uh, that no, I have something. nothing to base it on other than I am somebody that looks at precedent on things. And we certainly know in this town – of late about massive sports franchises that or or empires that you never thought would sell but the inheritance tax got to the point where it was more beneficial to sell it than to maintain it i mean we saw it with the indianapolis motor speedway for that matter and then the nfl team here is here because of a relocation that was a stadium issue totally different i get that um i don't have any reason any inkling any shadow to to believe that the simon family at this time is is even thinking of that but if if there is a transfer of the franchise from Herb Simon to his son, who has has stated numerous times that he wants to keep the team here, but again, I couldn't blame him if all of a sudden relocating the franchise became a more financially beneficial thing than the inheritance taxes of inheriting the team. I, that that would be my only pause. Yeah, and I get that concern. I mean, we've seen in the, in the last few years where uh, the team owner dies and the team is sold, you know, but that's kind of a separate situation where it's put into a trust and there doesn't seem to be as much interest perhaps in running the team within the family. After the owner dies, we saw that with the Broncos, right? Um, Where that was a situation where there was a trust and then a bidding process, but the team was obviously kept still in Denver in Portland right now. You know, the uh, Paul Allen trust still owns the Blazers and Jody Allen, his sister is running the team. Uh, but those are separate situations, and like a trust is a totally different legal situation than if a team uh, is, you know, given from the father to the son, and there's an inheritance in play as opposed to what's going on in those two cities. 
He's Mike Vorkanoff. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Vorkanoff, national NBA reporter for The Athletic. Mike, always appreciate the time. Hopefully we'll talk to you within the next 100 days before NBA All-Star Weekend, but if not, hope to see you out here then in February. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Indian February. It's going to be fun. It's going to be 70 degrees, Mike. 70 <laughs> degrees. We're telling you right now. Appreciate I, it, man. It's warmer than New York. I'll be good with that. That's right. Well, hey, if it's anything like the Super Bowl, guys, then we know that Mother Nature might shine upon big sporting events in Indianapolis. We shall see. Nate Atkins is with the Indianapolis Star and is getting ready. Hopefully, he'll get the same tailwinds we got when I made it over from Philadelphia to Amsterdam in under six hours, um, over 700 miles an hour, apparently, like record-setting speeds. It was awesome. Real quick, before we get to Nate, I want to let you guys know, because since Nate's gonna be, Nate is going to be over there, I was not far, especially when I was in Belgium um, and then into Luxembourg. We were not far from Germany. Um. German chocolate is a thing for sure. Obviously, Belgian chocolate is a big time thing. I have no idea if Amsterdam or Holland is known for chocolates, <laughs> but only because these bars were so big. Now, one of these is uh, here's the thing: we're playing roulette here. Okay, I have these two bricks of candy bars. <laughs> right? I'm showing on the on the YouTube page, the YouTube screen. Sorry, w- which camera would point at? Gotta go one? wide shots since you're standing. Okay, sorry. Okay, I have Tony's Chocolonely. Uh, it looks like it says donkey milk. <laughs> and then I have Tony's Chocolonely Citron Caramel. I don't know if that's like citrus caramel or what it is, but the wonderful packaging, isn't it? Jimmy, do you like caramel? Since, since Eddie, going back to the uh, NBA over-under win total, since Eddie was kind enough to take the wizards eddie i will let you choose if he's letting I you did choose. Not take the wizards i got stuck but, but you did it wizards. because of your own sacrifice Correct. so i will allow you to choose i will take the non-caramel chocolate the non-caramel okay I don't so like caramel. you like the donkey milk okay yep. there you go so there you go boys um try those out and see what you think now the reason i say this is because nate atkins is going to join us now he's on his way to germany and we'll see what sort of chocolatier souvenirs he gets i don't know if he likes donkey milk or not <laughs> uh nate you leave for frankfurt when I'm flying tomorrow at like four o'clock, and then I have a connecting flight. I'll end up getting over there in Frankfurt. I think local time at like eight in the morning. Oh yeah, so buddy! That, like have fun two, with that first day. My time. So. You've, you've done this yeah. before, right? Have you been to Europe? No, I've never done an international okay. game. Here's the key, buddy. Trip. Let me tell you something. So you're flying through where? You leave here at four, and you go through what city? Uh, Atlanta. Okay, so you go to Atlanta, then the flight from Atlanta to Frankfurt's probably like seven and a half hours, eight hours, something like that. Um, you want to try to sleep on the flight. Then once you land, plug through until like, I don't know what your schedule is on that first day, but you plug through until like four in the afternoon, take like a two-hour nap, get up, go to dinner, and then get to bed by like nine or ten o'clock, wake up the next day, and you'll be on schedule. There you go. The plan sounds great, except the Colts don't want to jive with that. So our day starts at 4 p.m. <laughs> over there. So maybe I'll maybe I'll get a nap like at uh, I don't know one o'clock there. I don't know. It's, it's all going to be disorienting and kind of you know fly by the seat of my pants. I think. Well, here's the thing. Obviously, they are taking on the New England Patriots. You know, there's New England in its own right. It almost feels like not unlike you know the game with New Orleans was one of those that you felt like New Orleans had to have. And New England season is a wash, but, man, they are circling right now. Um, So, you know, I don't know how much national interest there will be in it, but I think it's intriguing for certain. Tell me, in your opinion, Nate, 
from the Indianapolis standpoint, the storylines that are most intriguing you about this game is what? Uh, for the Colts' point of view, I mean, I think the fact that this game's right before the bye week is going to tell us a lot about kind of what this team, or, or a little bit about what this team has left. So they had the three-game losing streak. People got pretty down, I feel like, after that Saints game. Uh, just just seemed like people resetting expectations. They beat the Panthers, but I've seen it, it didn't seem like that really lifted too many spirits. It was more taking advantage, you know, with the two pick sixes against a pretty bad team. And this game, I guess you could say, is, is similar in the fact that they're going up against a two-win team that has one of the worst offenses. But however you draw it up, if this team is 5-5 five and five, going into the bye week with everything they've had to deal with, I think at least sort of internally for sure, and probably at least a little bit externally, there's probably a little bit of feeling, and at least the fact that you're in the mix, you can get to the bye week, you can try and reset a few things, get Juju Brents back, for example, uh, you know, and, and, and then obviously you have to make some offensive strides. So kind of how it looks, I think, is going to mean something. But, you know, it's meanwhile, if they're four, you know, if they lose this game and they're four and six, then they've lost four of five, and the one win was, you know, the one against the Panthers. Yeah, I think people start, start writing it off pretty quickly. So it's not, you know, it, certainly if this team is going to, you know, make this year something, if they're going to contend, it's hard to look at this game and not think it's sort of a must win because it's hard to picture a team that can't beat this version of the New England Patriots and then falls to four and six coming back from that in the AFC. Whereas if they're five and five, it may be sort of a, you know, not exciting five and five, but the main thing is within these buildings, they want to, they want to feel like the math is on their side. They want to feel like some of the problems are fixable not all of them will be with the fact that Anthony Richardson's down for the year, but there's, there's, I think there's, there's some uh, kernels of hope they can get out of the fact that they win this game. And so I think part of it, too, is when I talk about how it looks, if this is a game where they really get Jonathan Taylor going, and I feel like we say that every week, but if it's finally a game where that sort of plays out that way, you can start to think of this team as you know similar to the one they had in 2021 where – you know, quarterback play down the stretch was certainly a question, and they were a team that leaned heavily on the run, but they found ways to make it happen because Jonathan Taylor was so electric, you know, and enough enough else kind of went their way, and the math was on their side, and they kind of climbed out of a hole too. So uh, some of the key players on this team were you know, guys who were in that spot, and, of course, that team didn't end up finishing, but they had that chance going into the final couple weeks. This team wants to have that chance. The veterans on this team want to have that chance going in the final couple weeks. And I feel like they'll have a better idea of if that's realistic at all based on how this Sunday goes. Colts beat writer for the Indy Star, Nate Atkins, with us on Query and Company. Nate, one of the age-old adages for Bill Belichick, especially at the height of his powers, was he's able to take away what a team does best offensively and make you find other ways to beat them. If that is still the case with Bill Belichick, even though there's not this type of star power that's been in New England in the past, what is the best of the Colts? in terms of offensively. I know the easy answer is probably Jonathan Taylor, but he's still getting his workload ramped up. If you were to look at this Colts roster and say, yeah, that's the area Bill Belichick and company are going to try to take away, what would it be? Yeah, I think you'd have to go with either Jonathan Taylor or Michael Pittman Jr. But I think the fact that you know one of those players in Pittman is relying on the backup quarterback, I'm expecting the game plan for Belichick to be to just really suffocate the run, to use some of these bare fronts and diamond fronts that the Panthers and Jaguars have used to really stymie the Colts' run game and force Gardner Minshew and the Colts' passing game to throw out of it. And that's where you're going to stress some of the pieces that are kind of having to make it go right now. We'll see if Josh Downs can play 
on the knee injury he suffered or he sort of re-aggravated this past week. If he can't, though, that's sort of the steadiest, uh, you know, image, like short area target that Gardner Minshew has had. So, you know, that's where it's it, it really is hard to see them moving the ball super well throughout the year unless they get, you know, it, it, it all happens kind of through Michael Pittman Jr., uh, at least till whenever Jelani Woods can get back out there. It's, you're trying to find these explosive plays in this offense. And if Belichick's able to sort of, you know, manipulate the math on the front end of the run game to keep that out of out of the playbook for Shane Steichen, it really limits the number of ways that the Colts can really burn them. And so I think that's what he's going to do. And he's going to just force the ball out of Minshew's hands and really stress just other parts of this passing game. It's trying to get on track with a backup quarterback. Like I said, Downs going out is hurt. They're going on the road, the, the jet lag playing at a different time in, in Germany. It's all these things that are hard to work through for a passing game that has not been playing well lately. And so I fully expect that's what Belichick's going to do, especially when you think about the last time that he lost to the Colts back in 2021 was when Jonathan Taylor ran all over him and the Colts completed five passes, but they got away with it because Jonathan Taylor had just a monster performance. I think that game's going to very much kind of stick in his mind and they're going to find whatever ways they can to try and keep that from happening again. You know what they should do for that jet lag aspect, Nate? They should fly over there, try to sleep, and then get there like at 8 and try to plug through till about 4, take a nap till dinner time, and then about 6, get up, <laughs> and do the rest of the day, go to bed early, and the next day they're reset. I'm telling you, it's yeah, a fail-proof plan. You laid it all out for them. If, only, <laughs> if they can move their practice schedule, I'll be very happy for that too. It is a fail-proof plan. Hey, um, Nate Atkins, uh, the Indy Star, is our guest talking about the Colts. Zach Moss has obviously been – um, you know, at this point, he has lived up to justify the trade for him, and he has been a good find. But are, are we seeing almost the completion, uh, not necessarily the phase out, but the total handover to Jonathan Taylor, which I understand. Are there other ways in which Shane Steichen will try to get Zach Moss involved, or do we now pretty much know exactly where what his role is going to be? I think Jonathan Taylor has definitely taken over the lead spot. It's no longer a split. It shouldn't really be close to a split, uh, partly because they've also got him so involved in the passing game. So uh, he's their most electric runner. He's their best option as a receiver. And uh, you know, and he's playing better as a pass protector than he did last year. And he's the one who's most fresh, not much wear and tear this season, doesn't have injuries he's really dealing with, whereas Zach Moss has had uh, the heel and, and the elbow and some other things going on. Uh, so I definitely think that Jonathan Taylor is going to take you know the lion's share of it. But Zach Moss is more, uh, I think he'll be more of sort of a short yardage player. It seems like when they get near the goal line, either way, if they're backed up against their own or, or heading into it, that's when they tend to lean on Zach Moss, maybe just a little bit more stable of, you know, put your head down and get a couple yards and, and try and play through contact and protect the ball. So he's got some of that. I think they'll give him a you know, series here and there, like a, a series every third quarter. I think you could bank on that just to sort of keep Jonathan Taylor a little bit more fresh. But I fully expect this to be Jonathan Taylor's backfield, not only because he's the best back, but because they're in this bind right now. They're trying to find ways to get explosive plays that doesn't result in turnovers. It's what they, the, the eight turnovers in two weeks really changed their thinking on this. And I think last week you saw them, transition more into a, a pretty safe passing game that was going to lead on Taylor. Of course, the Panthers ended up kind of suffocating it down the stretch, but the idea being that if you hand off to Taylor, you minimize a lot of the turnover risk naturally uh, because it's you know it's, it's not the same as throwing the ball. And also, 
you know, he's the most explosive player that they have in the offense, too. So they're trying to get explosives and they're trying to keep from turning it over. I think they're going to lean more and more on Taylor. The one thing that they have to, you know, they have to try to avoid here is, is like I mentioned earlier, if, if teams are going to put uh, five defensive linemen down and, and, you know, cover up all of their opportunities to get second level blocks and double teams and all of that and take Taylor out of it just with the math. Uh, that's where they have to adjust a little bit, but I don't. But again, even in those situations, I think what's more likely is that they start using Taylor as a receiver. They like to motion him out, out wide. That sort of reveals whether the defense is in man or zone, and that it helps them, even just in other ways, throwing underneath to Josh Downs or Isaiah McKenzie. So I, I fully think Taylor is is a full time starter here, and Moss is more here as a, a bit of a change it up, bit of a short yardage back. And then a guy they feel good about if anything were to happen to Taylor, if he were to not be able to play. Nate Atkins, Colts Beats writer with us here on Query and Company. Nate, when you look at Josh Downs and what he's meant to this offense, and as we await the injury report, whether or not his knee injury that I know he had going into the game, it was active and then aggravated a little bit within that game against Carolina. If he is forced to miss time, where can the Colts rely upon their passing game to step up? Does it rely on Isaiah McKenzie? Are you needing another leap forward from Alec Pierce? Where does the offense go if Josh Downs has to miss any time? Yeah, it'd be a pretty big loss because he's really been their short area type of player. And he's done some down the field too. But at least he's a guy that sort of – he's their guy who can beat man in zone coverage, middle of the field, short depth of targets. That That's kind of – where Gardner Minshew likes to operate, and uh, it's going to be tough because Isaiah McKenzie, you know, he's he's built his he's same height and weight as Josh Downs, but he's more of a guy that you're trying to get the ball in his hands and let him go. He's a little bit more of a little bit more of a gadget player than the type of uh, type of in structure route runner that Josh Downs has become. Uh, kind of a tough guy over the middle, uh, you know, against zones or or just beating man with uh, with his speed. Isaiah McKenzie is, I think, just a lower-volume player naturally. And so I think what they do is they probably just pepper Michael Pittman Jr. even more. And I'd like to see them move Pittman into the slot some more where that works in your run game as that sort of you know oversized slot receiver uh, who's a good blocker. But it also it gives him a chance to catch some of these short passes like they've been doing from the outside, but they can do it some more from the inside, maybe get him the occasional matchup on a linebacker where he – you know, has the speed advantage as opposed to outside corners. I think that's what they're going to have to do. And maybe a little bit of Kylan Granson. He's played a little bit of that slot role before. He's sort of a, you know, a little bit like a hybrid slot receiver tight end. Uh, but it's going to be difficult. It's, it's where they're probably going to lean more on passes to Jonathan Taylor, some of the, you know, design screens to him or the tight ends. And, yeah, they're trying to get Alec Pierce involved, and, and they're doing a better job at that the past couple of weeks where it's not just, you know, they're not just doing post and fade routes and, and comebacks to him. They're using him on a little bit shallower depths of, of, you know, crossing routes and dig routes. So they'll work in a little bit more of that. It's just been a process to get kind of the volume up. But I think losing Josh Downs just makes it very hard to have this be a be a high volume passing attack right now not designed to be anyway but sometimes it had to be based on kind of what's going on with their defense and and some of the turnovers they have to answer to but i think that's where they're they're going to become more and more of a a run first team that tries to do some play action and some uh 
just kind of cobbling it together while also making Michael Pittman, you know, the most targeted player of all time. Uh, that's kind of how I would expect that to go. Nate, probably hard to know this because it's walk through today. You know, they're just kind of getting resumed, but. From an injury standpoint, is there any, you know, it seems like there have always been, like, say, midweek, a couple of injuries that pop up that are surprising to us or that lingered from the previous game that we didn't anticipate still being in the mix. Is there anybody that you're looking at that may be still of question for New England? I mean, for the New England uh, game, not for the Patriots. Yeah. I mean, outside of Josh Downs is the big one to monitor. I'd say. Interesting that Drew Ogletree left that game with a foot injury, and we haven't really got an update on him yet. He was listed as doubtful, and it was late in that game, so I'm not sure the severity on that one. That's another loss that would be you know, decently sizable because he's their one two-way tight end who's out there and available right now. Uh, I think those are those are kind of the main ones that I can think of. The other one would be you know, Zaire Franklin. Apparently, they thought he was going to play last week. It was late in the week when it, it kind of turned, and they didn't think he had progressed the way that they thought and listed him as doubtful, and then they ruled him out. I would think that the extra week, you know, you'd think that that would be enough to get him back. But, you know, until we see him out on the practice field, uh, that's another one that we have to watch for as well. Nate, is there any significance, or is this common standard operating procedure of Shane Steichen saying the entire team, practice squad included, is making the trip? Uh, my understanding is that's pretty normal. It's certainly normal for road games. You know, the practice squad will go on the road. They'll be on the sideline. They're hard to notice because they're usually, they're not in jerseys. They're just kind of in hoodies and whatnot, but they're usually out there. The injured players for road games will be up in the press box. That's mostly to keep them away from the game action. Uh, if they, you know, they're dealing with injuries, they can't really get out of the way of someone tumbling into the sidelines as well. But it's, uh, it's pretty normal for road games. Uh, obviously there's a, there's an expense element to taking them all on the road for something like Germany. But the thing about it is they'll get the Saturday and that's when they decide on practice squad call-ups based on their final walkthrough that they'll do over in Germany. And they've got to have those guys available there. They can't be calling them in, you know, to fly from, you know, the U S to Germany on a Saturday afternoon for a game. It's nine thirty Sunday morning. So they'll have them all over there. and uh, It'll just be a chance for them to sort of, you know, make adjustments as they need to with everybody on site. Nate, do you like German food? I love German food. Ooh. I'm big into, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the sausage uh, the sausage scene over there. And I hear I heard you talk a little bit about the chocolate. Excuse so me? I, I, I didn't know they were, into, they were as big on chocolate, but I'm looking to try some of that too. Well, I was in Luxembourg and I bought some German, I bought a chocolate bar and the guy's like, oh, this is the best because it's German chocolate. I'm like, okay, sure. And it was, it was good, right? Um, now, I'm not a fan of like like slaw and that kind of stuff. Like, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of that. Like the, but the what about the beer itself? Are you a fan of the beer over there? Oh yeah, that's 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 gonna be the highlight for me. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes it's it's room temperature though. Does that bother you? Uh, it's it's not my preference, but if it's good enough, I, you know, I can I can overlook the other parts of it. <laughs> okay, how long are you there? So the the game is on obviously Sunday, right? Yeah, we'll fly in on Thursday. So Thursday, I get there like eight a.m. on Friday, and then we'll stay through uh, till like ten a.m. Monday German time, and then I guess I'll be back here sometime like sometime Monday night. So really, it's like Friday night into Saturday. All day Saturday is going to be kind of our day to 
hang around and check out Frankfurt. So call you early Tuesday morning is what you're saying, yeah? <laughs> Six hour difference, yeah, I think. Six hour time difference. Yeah, or or Monday night, and I'm just like, I'm a night owl normally, but I feel like I'm going to be back here. It'll be 10 p.m. and I'll feel like I'm like 75 years old. Well, actually, coming back, Nate, coming back, I think is easier because you come like when I came back yesterday. You know, you land and basically it's time for bed. So I mean, I was up for 22 hours right on the return, but you come back and you deal with it right and then you go to bed and you wake up and you're, you're pretty much okay a little but i have no idea what day it is as far as i know today is uh friday november 2nd i have no idea what day it is you know what i mean yeah you're probably right on that i'll just be ready to collapse and then you reset the next day <laughs> it's a little weird to think like getting in and i'm gonna be so tired it's like 8 a.m local time there and i don't know where you go for a nap at that time or or like you said i guess i need to power through until like early afternoon and try and figure something out there so i feel like i'm just going to be kind of stumbling in the wilderness that's right you'll be stumbling through whatever you do if you go to amsterdam don't try to to use phone video for in the red light district that's frowned upon i learned that the hard way um all right nate lastly the um i wanted to get reaction to this because you covered him you know obviously when he was here were you surprised, A, that it was this point in the year? And I know it happened yesterday, but surprised that Carson Wentz got the opportunity with the Rams, or were you more surprised that it took this long for somebody to sign him? Uh, it's kind of interesting that it got to this point and he hadn't been signed, and now he does. You know, I figured that we would have had a resolution one way or the other where he was either an option early in the year for a team or earlier in the year for a team that really needed a quarterback like either the uh, – Jets or maybe the Giants or a team like that that had been banking on, you know, quarterback a starting quarterback uh, who's out. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's as teams look around, there there's just not a lot of other options. It's a guy that at least you sort of feel like, you know, you, you know who he is from a scouting perspective. The Rams, of course, scouted him a lot back when they were uh, looking at him and Jared Goff, and I remember covering that draft and they were interested in both at the time so it may be just an opportunity to you know he's out there and he's you have a chance to get him in here and get a look at him and see where the heck he is at this stage of his career but yeah it's 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 always weird for a player that has played a lot who's not yet you know he's he's like 31 to just sort of sit until this stage in the year so uh, it wasn't something I necessarily expected to see but then again um, when you look around there's so many quarterback injuries right now I feel like like big like veterans going through things that you know eventually i think someone's going to have to be interested in them nate enjoy the german food enjoy the german beer enjoy the german chocolate and most importantly uh cover the game well and we look forward to talking to you have a safe trip all right all right thanks so much all right nate atkins of the indianapolis star Rafael Davis of the Big Ten Network is somebody who played at Purdue would be able to opine on this. So I'll begin with that question. Um, and thanks for joining us, Rafael. I, I was just getting ready to say, like, this time of year, sometimes it can be hard to truly analyze teams because you just don't know the stability of rosters in terms of which coaches have solid rosters, which are experimenting still and trying to find things out. As a player – did you have a much better idea, like in say, as the year went on, of, of what you were going up against? And is this time of year still kind of that experimental stage? Well, I mean, I mean, you see it from some teams that have new, newer teams with a lot of new faces. I can remember going through that 
in the 2015, 20, I mean 2014, 2015 season, we had five new freshmen and the transfers, so six new faces, only three returning guys that really gave minutes. So that was a big transition. But outside of that, I mean, you go through all your stuff in the summer. I think early on it's mostly about playing, playing the right way. I mean, doing your schemes that you learned in the summer the right way, playing hard, getting the 50-50 balls, being a cohesive group and doing things the right way. I think um, the team chemistry grows as the team grows. But I think early on, I think the details of the game matters the most. Rafael, I'll try to not have my IU hat on too tight with this because I know that they are a, a team that has a lot of new faces and lost 60% of their scoring from a year ago. So there's going to be some growing pains for certain, but I feel like they have a pretty good club. When you look at Pat Chambers in year two with Florida Gulf Coast, top four scorers back from a year ago, did that game challenge Indiana in the way you thought it would in terms of what Florida Gulf Coast is and where their expectations are this year? I mean, if we're being fair as well, I mean, you think about Florida Gulf Coast, Isaiah Thompson didn't play in that game, and that's their leading, their returning leading scorer. So I think Indiana struggled in that first half defensively and just having um, – I think in that first half, it just looked – I mean, just to – not to be harsh on Indiana or anything, but – they just look uninspired, similar to what Michigan State looked in their first half. Just uninspired, uninspired basketball, um, not being in the right place defensively, uh, not moving the basketball. They didn't get out in transition at all, which is pretty, which should really be kind of what their go-to this season. But I don't. I think that second half they really picked it up on both ends. I think Gabe Cups. I think Gabe Cups gave an effort and the energy down the stretch of the game that really helped get those guys over the hump. But I think that's why Coach Woodson went with him at the end of the game because in games like that. When you have guys that – I mean, maybe playing a mid-major team, but those guys weren't scared. I mean, you think of Dalian Johnson played at Penn State, knows what's going on. He's not scared to come in Assembly Hall and have a good game. So, I think that showed. But I think down the end, you start to see the guys play hard and come together. Now, I got are you at the grocery store, by the way? Which I, I appreciate. <laughs> no, I am. I, I actually, my date was messed up. My wife flew in. And, uh, she, was, she flew in late. And then now uh, the baby got sick, so – the day's been thrown off a little bit, but I'm making it happen. I, I'm curious, are you going the self-checkout line, or are you going with the the main line? You know what? I had more than 10 items, so I had to get out of the small line. That's what makes okay. it I'm, can I, I'm going to guess the, the next line. item scanned. I'm going to go with salad dressing. What's your guess, Jim? No, wait. No, I take that back. You mentioned the baby. Um, I'm not going to go with formula yet. The diapers would maybe be at the bottom of the cart. I'm going to stick with salad dressing. Jimmy, your guess? I'm going to go with uh, condiment. We'll go ketchup. Eddie, well, that's basically what uh, salad dressing crazy. is. Crazy. You should have you stayed with the baby because it was milk. Oh, <laughs> man. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Hey, um, so no, I'm out now, so it's all good. You know, you mentioned Gabe Cups, and I'm curious of this. Indiana's got some guys that are obviously all teams do. You know, you have a mix of guys that are clearly your five star, probably one and done level players, and then guys right. that are you know f- four year guys, which Gabe Cups presumably would be. You were right. a great player, I felt. Did you ever find yourself elevated? Did you ever find yourself where there was a guy on your roster that you knew you were more talented than, but his level of focus and practice was such that he elevated your game, even though he might not have been the level of player you were, but just based on his effort, it became contagious. Oh, man, I can uh, give you a perfect example. My freshman year, I come into Purdue thinking I'm hot stuff. I average 20, 25 points, 30 points in high school. I'm a top 100 player. And then not halfway through the season, Drew Anthrop, who was a former walk-on that earned a scholarship, but just because he played hard or whatnot, but still, still kind of 
in practice and looked at as a walk-on in sense and substances, but he took my spot. He took my minutes. And that was something uh, that was a hard pill to swallow, but it also showed me what it meant to be on the floor, showed me how to play hard, showed me what mattered to coach. And then Drew ended up becoming one of my favorite teammates. He really showed me the rope. So that would be my example. Your biggest, I guess, area of question We'll do both schools here for the Big Ten locally. We'll right. begin with Purdue. Right. Your biggest question mark about Purdue heading into the year is? Athleticism. My biggest question mark would have been how can they um, fare in a tournament? I think in the tournament, I think Big Ten teams have lacked athleticism in the past. I think you think about the teams that they've lost to, even uh, getting up and down the floor has been a problem. Competing at the rim has been a problem. I mean, getting uh, getting to the rim – off the dribble, because you think about Purdue, you think about last season, and their offense was good, but it was a lot of um, catch the ball on perimeter, look right away for Zach Eady. Don't do nothing else. <laughs> look for Zach Eady. And I know that's not how Coach Coach Painter isn't that way, but when you play with such a dominant big like an A.J. Hammonds or Isaac Haas or a Caleb Swanigan, a Zach Eady, that's just your first instinct is to get the best player to basketball. And I think what they did in that first game the other night was – they just caught it and shot it. Too many times last season, Purdue passed up shots. You think of Ethan Morton passing up shots. I mean, he was catching and firing. Brandon Smith, Fletcher Lawyer, go 8 for 11 from three. They're not even hesitating. Brandon Smith is playing extremely confident off of the dribble, making plays off of a ball screen. They're running more ball screen sets. So. And then also what Lance Jones brings is just a, a added quickness, an added, athlete, an added athlete. They're playing kind of a – a two-guard lineup. So with Purdue, Lance Jones is able to allow Fletcher Lawyer to be a shooter. You don't have to break guys down off the dribble. You come off screens, you make open shots, and then defensively, now Fletcher Lawyer, he doesn't have to guard the best perimeter guy or even one of those quicker guards. You could just put Lance Jones on him. And that helps him there, but then also Lance will help with Braden Smith. He doesn't have to handle the ball all the time. He doesn't have to be the one-man press breaker. Now you have two guys that are comfortable with the balls in their hands. And then Cam Heidi and Miles Coleman bring athleticism in the open floor. That's kind of my thing with Purdue is being more athletic, having a faster tempo, and then the guards being more comfortable. And then for Indiana, it's just with all these new faces, 10 new guys, is how quick can you turn into a cohesive group? My biggest question for Indiana is that um, McKenzie and Baco has to play well. He has to score. Like it's for Indiana to be where they want to be, He's got to be the five-star freshman that they thought that they that they got, and they and believe so he's hard. an elite-level shooter, right? I mean, does isn't he a guy, yeah. especially in the mid-range, that should be able to get shots? And he will. And the thing is that I try to tell people all the time about freshmen is, if you look at Michigan State, Xavier Booker, Cohen Carr, and those dudes, I haven't seen a guy come in as a freshman and really dominate the floor, affect winning, actually, not just score points. I mean, actually affect winning would be since DeAndre Russell. I mean, he came in and he took Ohio State and they, they were winning. I don't know if they – they were close to making – I know they were on a bubble. I believe they made the tournament. Maybe not, but they were competing. It takes a lot. He was the number two draft pick. So it's really tough for a freshman to come in, have the ball in their hands and make the right plays, make the right reads. He played more as an athlete in high school. He was more of a catch live, shoot open jumpers, uses athleticism, and now he's having to read screens, find his spots. He doesn't have the ball in his hands a lot. So it's a – it's a bunch for a freshman. You see Malachi Brandon, he didn't get until halfway through the year a couple of years ago at Ohio State. Bryce Sissabal, he scored a lot of points, but Ohio State didn't win any games. So I think if you really want to affect winning and you really want to have that freshman, it's just all about 
the growth process. And Xavier Johnson, Trey Galloway, and Malik Renew, they've got to be strong. Those three can't really have bad games. I'm not asking for 15-plus points, but those three have got to be consistent with the effort, the energy, their leadership, being out in transition, making the right plays. Malik Renew's got to be simple on the block. He's got to produce. In that first half, they struggled. But then in the second half of the game last night, they go for 31 points. They've got to be a consistent bunch to allow uh, McKenzie and Baco to grow throughout the season because it's, it's tough for a guy to, to get it after just one game. Former Purdue star Rafael Davis now with the Big Ten Network is our guest. I want to go back to talking about Purdue at that spot when you're talking about, because it's a perfect segue, just when you're talking about freshmen getting in rhythm and learning you know, spots, I thought last year Fletcher Lawyer – Start out. He had a great year for a freshman. We got to remember that he was a freshman. Right. But by the end of the year, in particular, once people started defending him aggressively, kind of saw the book on him, and were able to get players with length on him, he kind of hit that freshman wall. Is that right. more about? Do you offset that more by him? You know, basically changing his body, or does schematically Purdue have to come up with different ways to get him looks, especially late in the year? Well, now you don't put your quickest, your most athletic guy on Fletcher Lawyer. You put him on Lance Jones. Because if you don't, Lance Jones is going to go around your your third perimeter guy, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So now your athletic wing, your guy that can play defense, that can take away your wing, he guards Lance Jones. Because Lance Jones is a guy that scored 1,500 points in his career. He's made over 200 threes. He can break you down off the dribble. So I think the matchups change a little bit. I think sometimes teams last season – you could get away with maybe hiding a guy on Ethan Morton. You know what I mean? But Lance Jones is in attack mode all game long. You can't hide a guy on him. So I think that changes. I think now they have another ball handler that can make that can make plays for others, like a Lance Jones that can break somebody down off the dribble, that can get in the lane. I think Fletcher at times last season, he was dependent to do that as well. It was either he or Braden Smith. They didn't have another guy that could break guys down. And that's just not who Fletcher is offensively. That's just not his game, never has been. He's been a shooter, a dead-eye shooter. I think this year he's going to be back to that comfortable spot. I think he's going to be surprised at some of the, how open he is at times. So I think uh, I think it's going to be a more natural shooter role for him. And he won't have to defend the one of the quick guards, one of the small guards. I think that's going to help him too, keep his legs. With early announcements and the transfer portal being such a key part of developing teams in college basketball in today's game, has National Signing Day lost some of its cachet in terms of being just a, a hype, full of energy day, or is it still the same as it ever was? I mean, if I'm being, if I'm being honest, man, I just I think it started to lose the steam when I was in high school. I don't think we put that much effort in it when I. I mean, I signed to Purdue. I mean, we didn't. It wasn't that big of a deal. So I don't know. I think that's more of a fan thing. I think fans may be worried about other stuff now, but I think as players, as Universities, I think it's kind of just the same thing. You just sign, you just sign a piece of paper. It's not that. Um, I don't think the players take it as that big of a deal unless you're making it. A, unless you're making a commitment, you know what I mean. Unless you're making an announcement. But if you're just signing your letter of intent, I don't know. There's not no surprises with that. Do you like Purdue's class that they signed today? Yeah, I like it. I like their class. I think it's really well. I think it's athletic. I think they. Um, I think they have enough guys that would that play a lot of. That play a lot of different positions, a lot of different positions that um that they play a lot of different positions, and I think they have size, they have athleticism, and they got a group of guys that are gonna come in that are gonna be hungry. I think they got the right guys. I think now in college basketball, especially in recruiting, you can get you can get guys that may not be coming to your university for the right reason, 
And I think with Paint, I think Paint gives guys that are coming to Purdue to play ball, coming to Purdue to work hard, but also coming to Purdue for education. So then you don't necessarily have to worry about transfer portal or is a guy happy because you know they're there. They're there to play ball, but they're also there because of the education side of it. Rafael, we appreciate the time and uh, certainly get the milk on. The good news is you're going to be able to, to get the milk when you get home, right? You're not in trouble. I appreciate that, right? Oh, uh, no. I got, I got all my errands done. My wife is going to be a proud, happy woman. There you go, man. Da- dad and husband <laughs> oh, of the year right there. Hey, man, we appreciate it. All right, no doubt. You guys have a good one.